Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Solar Warriors, welcome back to another episode of Suncast. If you're new here, I just want to thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got that, of course, is your time. promise that it is time well invested. If you have been following the solar industry as I have for the past 17 years, there are kind of two segments that really stand out as growth markets, residential and utility scale. There's this middle market that represents hundreds of millions of square foot of rooftops and available parking space and corporate balance sheets and tax equity that is yet untapped. It's the commercial industrial or distributed generation market and Dozens of entrepreneurs, probably hundreds, have tried to figure out how to attack that market over the years. But it always comes back to access to the customer, the business owner or the building owner, and access to capital that cares about that middle market because it's hard to scale the way that residential is and the way that utility so easily is. Uh, Same paperwork, bigger headache. Today's guest and entrepreneur is committed to a mission of trying to figure out how to unlock the business and community opportunity that this mid-markets and the commercial industrial sector represents. Gareth Evans has been a leader in the energy sector and frankly a leader in his in, in his communities his entire life from working in charity and community organizations to military operations. He has parlayed that experience into building teams for some of the planet's greatest challenges at companies like Warley Parsons and has taken it now a step further to than just addressing problems at a large consulting firm to solving problems with the solutions they began to identify and work on for years. I think that today's episode is going to be a wonderful journey, especially for those of you who are intensely curious about the entrepreneurial process, especially if you've had any corporate or entrepreneurial experience. Gareth has a wealth of evidence and information to share that it's possible for him and it's possible for you. I hope that if you like these kinds of conversations and this is your first time here, that you'll click that subscribe button in whatever podcast player you're listening to and come back for more. We publish twice a week, executive profiles just like this one with Gareth, clean energy founder stories and startup advice and Tactical Tuesdays where we deep dive with subject matter experts to help you further your own career or business. All of that can be found and more at mysuncast.com. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, out of the gate, I want to give a hat tip to a mutual friend and someone who, without whom, I would not be having this conversation with Gareth today, uh, Mr. Bill Nussie of Engage VC. He posted on LinkedIn about an entrepreneur that uh, I know from a previous dinner I'd had with him is someone he would have included Verbatim, this is his words. I would have included this person in my book, Freeing Energy, if I'd known them at the time I was writing it. Well, that was enough to pique my interest. 
And I reached out to Bill and he introduced me to Mr. Gareth Evans, who we now have the privilege to listen through his conversation and journey today on Suncast. Gareth, welcome to the show. Nico, it's awesome. Glad to be here. It is an honor. I've really enjoyed getting to know you through the conversations that I've had with Bill. And then thankfully, his introduction to you has given me a glimpse into uh, someone that I agree with him is um, is working on a hard problem with a palpable solution. And there's and it's no doubt got kind of what we're going to unpack today, why Bill believes in your business and is back to you financially. Um, I want to start out, though, with a quote I often like to introduce and share quotes. I'm a quote hoarder of sorts. Um, and the one that uh, I have actually printed on my computer keyboard, I did one of these like, you know, get, you get the the vinyl that goes on the back of the yep, computer. Yep. So you can see uh, I have, well, most of anybody who's seen my computer says Suncast on the back. Well, I actually covered the keyboard with, with these uh, inspirational quotes. And the one that um, stands out to me the most um, is wisdom is knowing what to do next. Virtue is doing it. Love it. So that's David Starr Jordan. And what it means it, it, beyond what is, what is obvious to me is that there are a lot of folks in the world, in the corporate environment in particular, who get stuck in knowing what to do, but being afraid to do it. Today, we're going to unpack how you had the courage to step out and follow your dreams. Is there a quote that you would like to share with our audience before we get started? Yeah, my favorite quote is, um, if you're not living life on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Jim Wick, Wick, Tick, Wick, Kick, Taker, uh, first U.S. guy to climb Everest. Man, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, as folks can see, uh, the you like to live life on the edge. Uh, we uh, On the cover art for this episode, we're using a picture of you bombing down a mountain on a mountain bike. And I think it's a pit of, it's, uh, it is the epitome of kind of who you are. Shortly after we met, when I introduced you to some other friends, you showed up with, uh, with a cast on your arm. Yeah. Um, always out looking for adventure. Um, and you've, and you've found it in spades, I would say, trying to start a startup in the energy sector. We're going to get to the who, what, how, when, and why that came about. But I'd like to just take a look at the 30,000 foot level for a minute at kind of what I enunciated in the intro that is the problem. When you are hanging out with folks that just have generally no idea what you do, how do you enunciate the problem that you've created Vecta to solve? Yeah, I think um, this is the biggest opportunity in the market today is actually educating people as to the challenges, the opportunities. I think yeah. the problem that we are addressing is the fact that for businesses and communities around the world, um, energy costs are skyrocketing. You know, we're working with customers who have seen 40% increases in the last mm -hmm. two years. How do you plan a business around those kind of operational cost escalations Resilience is down, so outage rates are or outage rates are increasing. So, 150 billion dollars of lost productivity for businesses last year as a result of power outages. Wow. And emissions are now um, front and center of a lot of conversations at board levels, all the way down through capital yeah. markets, stakeholders, employees, and so businesses have these three uh, challenges that they're trying to juggle. And today, they feel like they're reliance on the utility to provide their energy. Energy is the lifeblood of our businesses, mm. but there are other options. And on-site energy, distributed energy is a huge financial, mm. um, environmental, and um, sustainable opportunity for businesses. And it's how do they get access to that? And the biggest challenge in the market today is, you, know, you alluded to this in the intro, 
the soft costs associated with developing these solutions are huge over like up to 50% of project costs today are these soft costs, consulting, engineering, sales, yeah. marketing, procurement, contracts, negotiation. So how do we compress all that out of the system, make it really simple, understandable, give business leaders the information, data, intelligence they need to make really informed decisions and not feel overwhelmed by the fact that um, they don't know what to do. So it just leads to that inaction that you just described, you know, how yeah. you turn that, that desire into opportunity. I love the way you described that. And I'll, I want folks who are regular listeners to do what I like to do, which is make connections between what we've heard before and what we're hearing now, right? So Dan Leary, who recently came on, I mentioned him to you. I really would recommend that you listen because he and you have a similar storyline. He, with Dina Watts, is creating a business process solution, right? He's creating a data business that informs how businesses, in particular asset owners, right? So we're talking about infrastructure asset owners, which is a whole other category of stakeholders, how they make decisions around not only the assets they currently own, but the ones they acquire and whether they, whether and how they operate them and repower them. It's a, there's a, there's an, as this industry matures, there's a segment required that, that makes sense of the data. I I will hearken to, I'll I'll liken it to, uh, we're in a, we're in a moment in energy that tech was in at a time when like Tableau came around. Right. It's what the do we do with all this data and how can a a business owner whose day to day is involved in trying to come up with solutions that solve cash flow problems, um, trying to make sure they have highly productive employees, trying to make sure they have a place to place to put their goods and services. Um, They want to make sure the building is comfortable and and improves productivity for their employees. The, The least the last thing they have time for is to go and try to find source uh, solutions for improving the what is the the biggest kind of vampire load on their balance sheet their yep. their energy mix so with all of that in mind and at the risk of me sounding too much like a fanboy of both the sector and vecta would you introduce us to vecta and why how you've built this business or why what you are building is going to help solve this problem that we've just enunciated yeah, so Vector is the energy transition platform and specializing in onsite energy. So we support businesses around the world to mm-hmm. baseline their situation today. How much energy am I using? Where am I using it? What's it costing me? What's my emission profile? Uh-huh. What are my objectives? And then what are my options for getting there? There's four buckets, energy efficiency, onsite energy, virtual power purchase agreements, and RECs. And so we support them to understand what components of their energy mix can be offset through energy efficiency and on-site energy in particular. And so we help them prioritize across a portfolio of two, ten, hundred thousands of sites where mm. they get the greatest value for doing this against their objectives. We then solution agnostically and technically and financially design the optimal solution for them, considering all commercially yeah. viable technologies, solar, wind, storage, gas, diesel, fuel cells, electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. And then once they've got a spec that they're really excited about and a business case that makes sense for them, we've got a marketplace of thousands of vetted suppliers who we get firm quotes from. So we've essentially compressed the whole soft cost of developing, planning, implementing a strategy to um, offset these business priorities in a really integrated software. Um, And then what we also, the, the future vision is 
every time a site is deployed, it's monitored, and these sites are going to be evolving. You know, they're there for twenty plus years, and so yeah. maybe batteries didn't pencil today, but maybe two years from now it does. So being able to then proactively push those insights to business leaders to say, now's the time you can achieve these benefits by doing X, Y, or Z. So just constantly pushing that intelligence to business leaders such that they can create a more sustainable and profitable business. If I'm a business owner, um, you know, whether I'm familiar with, with energy broadly or specifically over the last decade, what solutions really were in place for me to try to solve this prior to what you have to offer? Yeah, the status quo in the market today is um, consulting. So that's the world I came out of, charging hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, to come up with an energy strategy using Excel spreadsheets, mm. uh, giving it to the customer six, 12, 18 months later, and it's already out of date by the time you give it to them. So mm. that's kind of the status quo today. We've automated that process. And then the other mechanism is suppliers selling solutions to buyers. And so Something we hear a lot from the market, frustrations on both sides of the fence is the energy consumers, the buyers are very frustrated because they're being sold widgets and services all day long. They don't know who to trust. They don't know who to believe. They don't even know whether it's the right solution for them. And on the supply side, they get really frustrated because that trying to originate these projects, but their biggest competitor is not other suppliers. It's indecision from the customer (laughs) because the customer doesn't know whether to trust or believe them. And so this leads to then this very uh, constipated market, you know, and um, it just leads to a lot of inaction and indecision. Yeah. I'm going to quote um, from our mutual friend, Bill Nussie, uh, again, the, the author of Freeing Energy and also uh, one of your now board members um, from the PR, um, the press release when you announced the round, um, just to underscore what you said, the world is an unstoppable transition to clean, lower cost, reliable energy. While large-scale systems like power plants and transmission are an essential component of this transition, those projects can take years, sometimes a decade or longer, to get approved, built, and integrated to the grid. Fortunately, FECTA offers a parallel path that is far faster by helping businesses build their own smaller-scale on-site energy systems like microgrids. So just to kind of put a pin in what I heard, uh, energy efficiency, on-site energy, VPPs, RECs, there is a buffet of options, and it's confusing. Yeah. And heretofore the way um we'll call it like really uh you know profitable cash flow positive uh growing growth oriented businesses which would solve this is they'd bring in consultants that for hundreds of thousands of dollars would provide them with a strategy um and then you have to go out and figure out how to fix that how to fix that on your own oftentimes internally or pay uh that consultant to go and hire folks for you yep okay and the hardest part of that is on-site energy, as we know, uh, especially for because you had to figure out the financing for it. The RECs, pretty seamless market, um, but but hard for the decision maker to know where to go and who to trust. Um, energy efficiency, thanks to um, the the Obama era administration um, sort of financing options, is kind of a, a crack nut. Like that one, there's a lot of solutions out there. Again, it's how do I know who can give me the right offer? Yeah. Um, so, so here's a question I have for you before we move on to just talking a bit about um, the fundraising that you did recently and some of the other milestones that you've achieved. If you think back, given um, you've been working on this problem for a few years now, um, well, first, how long have you been building what is now Vecta? And we can, I don't want to get into the details of like specifically the Worley Parsons days yet, but what needed to be true for Vecta to work 
Because I think timing is everything. And I've been in this industry for 17 years. And when I met you first, I said, dude, this isn't a new and novel idea. So how is Vecta going to succeed where others don't? Yep. Yeah. In terms of timing, even even when we started was probably early. You know, we... uh, we incubated the idea for two years within Wally that you you alluded mm-hmm. to. We launched November 2019. COVID certainly didn't help the industry for those next two years. But I'd say the reality is five, 10 years ago, the grid was, grid power was affordable. It was reliable. No one was talking about sustainability. And so no one gave energy almost a second thought. Yeah. Um, now that's obviously changed. I'll tag that. And, and unlike homeowners, corporates had leverage with the utility yep. you know like we'll just use california as an example if you're on an e19 rate you're paying less than 10 cents a kilowatt hour on average yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. the demand charges that they were trying to fix then and that's why companies like stem are years ahead of others right yeah and i'd say to your point i think what happened then in parallel to that is the cost of battery and solar came down so significantly that these systems now became really comp- commercially competitive and i think the the missing link now is the enabling technology, you know, the, the items you're talking about before giving people access to the data, giving people access to the mechanisms to actually execute with confidence. So these were the pieces of the puzzle that kind of had to fit in place. It's almost like Uber mm. wasn't possible without the iPhone. I don't think yeah. on-site energy is possible without the vectors of the world, but you needed all these other ingredients to fall in place ahead of time, right. the pain points and the hardware services to actually do it at scale and what about the service providers yep right i think the capital the construction the equipment exists today in the market to make huge positive profitable impacts so that's not a problem at all i think technology is going to continue to get better it's going to get continue to get cheaper what we need to support the industry to do is do a high volume of projects really efficiently such that it's profitable for the businesses to actually deploy these systems um I think yeah. that's where the industry is struggling today is you've got the residential side of the market that's figured it out. You've got the big utility players that have figured it out, that's but they right. don't know how to convert that specialty capability into high volume, smaller right. contract uh, size projects. Okay. So with that in mind, what is it that you sell? Um, so on Vector side, we <laughs> get for the energy consumer, the businesses, we give them access to our platform, which... Yeah allows them to develop their energy transition strategy as well as configure Mm -hmm. the solutions as well as use our marketplace to get um, the right solution. And it's kind of incredible. And are there like, I mean, are there templates in the platform? Like when you say you get to use our platform, I'm imagining that because of your consulting days, you've you've made it simpler for them to understand how to sort of create their own strategy without having a a million dollar consulting budget. Yeah, one of the probably the most painful lessons we've learned is we launched right as COVID kicked off. So our ability yeah. to actually work hand in hand with customers and get real time feedback was go challenging. visit their building. Exactly. And we built our product in a bit of isolation initially. And it was very much heavy requirement for the user to input a lot of data. And people don't typically have access to that data or a desire to do so. And so now our platform is set up where if they put in an address and an industry type and an available square footage, then we take care of all the rest. Like we've got wow. 5,800 data points per location, per facility. And make recommendations. And then we already run an analysis on what would be the net present value of a solution, what are the savings, what are the emissions. So then 
We can prioritize across their portfolio where they get the greatest bang for buck. We are firm believers in kill bad projects early and often, such that the whole industry doesn't waste time going after them. Yeah. Prioritize the really good ones and then spend time collecting some additional data, utility rates, load profiles, that sort of stuff. I know this is difficult to do, but do you have an analogy? It's the X of Y. You know, like I have asked you, like, seems to me like this is pretty similar to how Energy Sage approaches residential, but I feel like that's an overly simplistic way to think about it. Is there a more apt analogy? Yeah, I think the one that a lot of people would just understand just from a day-to-day lifestyle perspective is, you know, when we go on holiday these days, we use Expedia. And within Expedia, we now get access to flights, hotel, rental car, insurance. We get to compare multiple packages that align with some minimal data inputs by us, a location, some preferred dates, number of people. And then the algorithms do the rest and you get to choose the right solution for you. Versus in the past, we'd have to either do all that research ourselves, call multiple mm. stakeholders, or we'd go to a travel agent, which would be the equivalent of a consultant, and you pay yeah. them a bunch of money to go and do it for you. <laughs> and it wouldn't necessarily be the solution that you wanted in the first place. So, um, And then the supply side um, synergy would be someone coming to you to sell you a cruise ship holiday, and you actually wanted to go climb Everest. <laughs> but they're trying to sell you the solution that they have access to. So that's, I'd say that's probably the cleanest analogy and one that's probably most understandable. That's very good. I love it when we get a chance to engage in this concept of idea sex. What from other industries can we borrow as a business model? And what I heard you say is that we're in an inflection point in the energy sector where we could learn from the consolidation that happened in the travel sector, trying to help people identify and solve for their affinity for one versus another type of solution. Um, categorization, labeling, sort of price vectors um, from uh, least time to implement to least cost to implement. Yeah. Right? Because people have different preferences and interests. Okay, cool. We'll probably get back around to that. I'm pretty sure we will. But before we dive too deep into the whole technology bit of the product and your background, I'd love to pique folks' interest with some of the accomplishments. Can you give me some info to go off of that suggests that, you know, Bill's not crazy for... (laughs) investing in in gareth uh and and vecta yeah from a company perspective it's definitely been a wild ride we kind of came to market about 18 months ago we didn't want to come to market through covid no one was buying no one was talking but we've had a really successful last 18 months and converted some pretty significant names we work we have great partnerships with honeywell uh, blue scope steel shandon um liberty utilities one of the biggest utilities in the world right through then down to local microbreweries, wineries, food and beverage processing facilities, car manufacturers. um, And we just helped secure a $150 million credit facility for a supplier who deploys waste heat to energy projects. And we get through our marketplace, we get a success fee for every time they draw down on that mechanism. So it's all about unlocking the market and really simplifying it. You give me a great example. uh, And you can use prudence to discuss names but examples are really good to ground concepts yep someone on your platform had been working to gain a client you know who i'm talking about the client ended up coming to you and working through vecta to vet how who would be the best supplier can you walk through that example to give folks an idea of how technology has evolved to provide business owners more more insight and control over their decision-making process. Yep. 
Yeah, so this is a really great case study. It was actually one of our very first customers, um, a brewery in Northern California, suffering half a dozen power outages a year, um, seeing their energy costs going up, and then wanting to be able to market their product as being sustainable. And so they were and engaged. actually does market that product as sustainable explicitly exactly. so for the Valley. last 10 plus years. Yeah, <laughs> Anderson Valley, yeah. Many, many of you can intuit who it is. <laughs> exactly. And so uh, they were approached by one of the leading suppliers in the market and they were, they agreed to go on the process with them. It took them um, almost six months to get a solution proposed to them and then another mm-hmm. six months to see contract terms. And at the end of that process, the terms didn't align with their interests. They were very unfavorable towards the buyer. It meant that um, essentially the supplier owned all the assets and to like, buy out options were minimal. And mm-hmm. so then the customer, Anderson Valley, was referred to Vector. And literally within two weeks, we had assessed, designed, configured the site, had specs in the marketplace. We gave suppliers three weeks to bid. We then had six competitive quotes for him to go through using our technology, you could rate them, rank them, negotiate, and then ultimately award the work. So you've got a year's worth of lost effort for buyer and supplier compressed into less than three months um, to have firm bids and a project ready to go. And so that's the power of the approach. It puts the buyer in control. It gives them the processes, workflows to ask the right questions of the market in the right language such that they get Apple to Apple's bids back such that they can then compare and move forward with confidence. I love it. And so like a 250% acceleration uh, or time can time compression. Uh, that is a powerful example. Yeah. Um, I'd say the biggest challenge is um, suppliers will say they offer this upfront work for free. And this is what sucks customers in is, you know, we'll do all this assessment work for you, but you get vendor locked. And also buyers don't realize that the cost is paid for somewhere down the line and they're going to pay for it over the next 20 years, 10x over. Hmm. And so paying a little bit upfront to get your kind of insurance premium, make sure totally. you're in control is kind of the, the beauty of the approach. If you are in the California market, like I was, um, anytime from 2005 to 2015, I'm pretty sure Chevron wasn't the client that lost uh, the brewery just now. So I feel fine saying this. No. It's like, you competed against Chevron and you watched school district after school district go with Chevron and they got in this vendor lock mm. where because they were working with this big multinational that had credible solutions and was operating in an, a sort of a shared savings model, they didn't feel the margin creep, right? They didn't feel that, but ultimately they got locked into contracts that five, six years later were incredibly out of market. Yeah. Right. Um, and it was because they went for safety over certainty. Yeah. What about funding milestones? This is it's a great example. How did you guys kick this off or keep it going through the pandemic <laughs> uh, as entrepreneurs? Did you friends and family around it? Like what at what point did, did Engage come in? I'd love to hear kind of the 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 quick and dirty milestones of like how you raised money to get to where you're at. Yeah. Quick and dirty is. Spent two years incubating the idea entrepreneurial within Worley, mm-hmm. realized that you couldn't build what we wanted to build, a solution agnostic, independent marketplace mm-hmm. within a corporation. Obviously, that goes against all um, independent metrics. So right. we encouraged them to give us some initial money to kick off the business. So mm-hmm. that was our initial funding. Um, and then we've done two venture capital fundraisers since. The first was with Volworth, 
um, and co-fund two amazing funds. Volworth is one of the leading climate tech funds in the world, yeah. in my opinion, mm-hmm. uh, with Kareem uh, Dabber and Joe Goodman, incredible mm-hmm. individuals, hugely talented. Um, and so that was our first seed round. I must admit that was a massive learning curve for me from a fundraising perspective. I knew nothing about fundraising. I pitched to probably over 120 people over a six month period. It was tough market conditions, new market, selling a marketplace into an industry that never even thought a marketplace would exist. So it needed me to find the volos of the world who really understood the, the market dynamics. And then that gave us some good runway. Our plan was to do a series A back end of this year, start the next, but be based on market conditions and a bit of kind of uncertainty. We wanted to get ahead of that and make sure we're in yeah. control of our own destiny. And we were introduced to Bill and the tech squared team, Scott Lapano and crew and it just seemed like a perfect fit. And so we just closed a fundraise with them, which is super exciting because of their yeah. go-to-market experience, their engaged program, which connects startups with corporates. So It's such a uh, sweet program yeah. and, and um, fits, in, fits in a, a nice gap in the market. And obviously Bill is uh, an expert in this space. So having his, his network, his intelligence, his experience on our side is huge. Yeah. He, and he's also you know, incredibly insightful. Having having the tech experience. If you haven't listened to the to the Bill Nussie interviews on Suncast, you've missed an opportunity. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to the, the I think three hour epic that I did with him <laughs> in December two thousand twenty one when he launched Freeing Energy. Um, and I'll leave that there. Thank you, Bill, for all that you've contributed to our industry as a as an outsider coming in. Uh, Gareth, I'd like to take a step back here and just get a better sense of kind of what led you to take on this crazy adventure. Uh, if folks are paying attention, you clearly don't have the same accent that I do. So let's start with where are you from? Yep. Grew up on a little peninsula called the Wirral that is nestled between Liverpool and North Wales in England. Um, great upbringing. Um, it's a, yeah. it's a very close to Liverpool, which, is, you know, was European city of culture for several years. Um, mm. It's famous for its Docklands, the Beatles, its soccer teams. And so they were kind of the things I grew up with. Mm, amazing. What, uh, what kind of, uh, family background did you grow up in? I'm curious, like, what was the conversation like? Is it a very entrepreneurial family, a close knit, small nuclear family? Tell me about that. Yeah. Family of five. I've got a younger brother and sister, um, mom and dad, both were police officers. So no entrepreneurial background at all. Um, my mom retired when she had me, my dad, you know, worked his whole career, did some amazing things, took his office to, I think his career really gave me the love for travel and experience at the age of nine. He took a job in the Caribbean where we spent two years living there. He was supporting wow. where uh, in Tortola. And so he was responsible no for stopping drugs coming up from South America through the Caribbean chain to the U S. And so I got to experience Island life. I got to see someone working under stressful conditions. Um, mm. And so, yeah, as a super close knit family, you know, it was always about experiences rather than materialistic things. So mm. that kind of, that set me up for going after experiences of ad- adventures, travel, yeah. and that's kind of led my whole life. I could see how your dad, uh, as with many of us, is an early and personal hero for you, uh, setting in the standard of both work ethic and adventure, um, which clearly <laughs> is evident in who you are today. Uh who else did you look at from early childhood as a personal hero? Yeah, in my childhood, it was uh, Michael Schumacher, the Formula One mm-hmm. driver. Yeah, he was, uh, 
He was ruthless when he needed to be. He was a great leader, great team player, and he became, you know, the greatest Formula One driver of that era, um, yeah. maybe of all time. And so I just loved how he could go from being this super chilled, easygoing guy to then just being helmet on. It's go time, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. And I kind of that was amazing to see. I love it. A lot of us end up uh, taking kind of twists and turns in our career. We're going to talk a bit about kind of the road that led you to Vecta now, but I'm curious, is there, as you were sort of coming up as a young man and thinking about the future that you envisioned for yourself, is there a career that you thought you were going to sort of be destined for that you ended up not pursuing or not ending ending up there? Yeah, actually full on. I sat in a Harrier jump jet at the age of four in an air show and I thought I was going to be a fast jet pilot for... um, for all the way up until I finished university, I spent many years with the Air Force and the Army cadets all through school. So going off and doing camps and drills and learning to shoot and doing section attacks and flying planes. And then I took a year out between school and university. I wasn't quite ready to go to university yet. I did some mm-hmm. charity work in South America. But then when I went to university, I was sponsored by the Air Force, so the Royal Air Force, to fly planes at the weekend. So I'd study all week, fly planes at the weekend. Um, and I thought that was going to lead to me being a fast jet pilot, but mm. for many reasons, uh, both personal for me and for the air force, we, we decided that that wasn't the right path. And so, uh, I went yeah. traveling again, did some crazy things, training with the Shaolin monks and others. Um, and that wow. I accidentally fell into the industry that I ended up in, but yeah, fast jet pilot was the dream. I still want to go and do a flight in a fast jet one day, but I've flown fully aerobatic military aircraft, single prop, super fun, crazy what they let us do at the age of 19, 20, 21. Amazing. Yeah. And at that age, full of piss and vinegar, just not afraid to push the envelope. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, I believe that uh, everything we do in our lives serves as a stepping stone or a building block, whether it's building skill sets or allowing us to develop pattern matching. I'm curious if there are any interesting other detours in your career that you feel like have really informed your career path. I fell into the environmental arena, you know, that's why I'd studied through university environmental science, just because I had a passion and love for geography and environmental science. That was almost my backup plan without me realizing mm-hmm. it. So I ended up um, finding myself in Canada after some travel, and um, mm-hmm. I became an environmental consultant, cleaning up old oil and gas well sites all through the Rockies. So I spent oh, most wow. of my life living out remotely in the field with um, big construction crews digging up old well sites and remediating them back to forestry land. So that was no super, way. super rewarding. But I always wanted the next big challenge. And so random gas emissions, I would be you know nominated to go and put on big scuba suits and go monitor gas. I put my hand up when the opportunity came up to go and support the oil and gas industry to move into Iraq after the Gulf War. And that was the okay. real turning point for me where... Here we were unlocking the biggest oil and gas reserves in the world for our energy thirsty um, economies. And yet the local yeah. team that was supporting me on the ground was surviving on two hours of power a day. Their infrastructure wow. being devastated, um, 120 degree heat during the summer. You can't do anything without access to energy and especially in those conditions. And so that became at the time a very pivotal mo- moment. And I didn't realize it would lead to me having a very strong passion for Vector, but it made me realize that access to energy is necessary for a surviving and thriving community. So you've actually had, uh, that's a, that's a 
very interesting path to learning about energy. And as I alluded to before, um, lots of folks uh, I've talked to in the sector, either through direct military conflict and being a part of our armed forces or as contractors, seeing uh, just sort of the disparity in energy access around the world yep. come to the realization that um, our infrastructure is broken and needs fixing. And there are, you know, very physical infrastructure solutions and there are, you know, leveraging the digital solutions, the tech solutions like you're doing. Um, I, you know, we mentioned Worley a bunch. So why don't we talk a bit about Worley Parsons? There are probably a fair amount of people that don't know what it is. How did you get involved in Worley and why is that, um, uh, you know, how has Worley sort of informed your viewpoint of of the world? I mean, it took you around the world. Yeah. Oh, Worley was incredible. You know, I joined this small environmental consulting firm back in 2004. And then two years into my career there, um, Worley acquired us. Worley is today the largest energy engineering firm in the world, headquartered out of Australia, 50,000 people yeah. around the world. They acquired half of Jacobs a few years ago. And uh, they're incredible. Every time I wanted a new challenge, I got to do it. So spent many years in Canada, two years in the Middle East. Then I went off to Perth, Australia, where the LNG and mining community was going gangbusters. So yeah. built 150 person consulting business there. And then I had an amazing mentor within the organization that said, you need to get more broader experience. So he got me into strategy roles, commercial pursuits, contracting. So I got to see the full holistic picture of how these projects are developed, how you win the work, how you execute at scale, how you manage these incredibly large budgets. And then that then brought me back to the US to transition the skills I'd learned there to North America. Then a, an amazing individual called John Rohde, um, who I, I believe you know, he works over at Res. He, uh, he hired me into a business development role. And that's how I really got into the power industry. I was selling uh, power consulting services to utilities and commercial industrial business owners throughout the country. And then the guy who was leading the consulting practice wasn't performing um, because I was the one who was seeing the industry for what it was. I was asked to step into that role. So my last few years within Worley was leading their global power consulting business for distributed energy and renewables. So that's where I got real great insights into the industry opportunity. And I got to meet amazing people that ultimately helped us frame the concept of Vector. And I think coming back to your last comments, the reason mm -hmm. why I'm so passionate about distributed energy is because we've seen, especially through the likes of COVID and others, the centralized systems that we operate under today are easier to build and operate initially, but there's so many points of single points of failure. And I think our communities and our businesses around the world have lost faith in the global leadership. And so how do we yeah. empower more people to take control of their own destiny versus relying on those top-down centralized systems? Can you give me a, like a three to five minute version of the entrepreneurial journey at Worley mm. of incubating this idea and how, when you realized I got to spin this out, like that's a, Big question for a lot of folks that, you know, I, th I would argue there's somebody listening today that they're doing the same thing inside of a big company and they feel like they're running up against a wall, but they don't realize that they have other options. Yeah. Kind of paint the picture for them, what it looks like for, for them to find, to find freedom for their project. Yep. Yeah. I think there's a few keys to this. Uh, I'd spent a lot of years at the organization, so I built up a lot of corporate credibility and good stakeholder support. And so- yeah. There's an amazing individual called Tony Frensham who came in to run the global new energy business. 
he was someone who worked for Dow Chemicals and others for many years. And he understood that you couldn't keep operating under selling people hours as a business to go and change the market. And so he supported myself and a few other individuals like Owen Quinn and others who went off and built their own internal business units Mm -hmm. to take some risks. I was lucky enough that within the consulting business I ran, there was some incredible individuals, one called Tristan Jackson, the other one called Andrea Rutolo, and they were real distributed energy experts. And so the first thing we did is we started manually doing this work for customers. And we started seeing a repeat theme of Mm -hmm. there is a need. What we are doing is broken and slow and painful. Spreadsheets don't cut the complexity of what is needed in the market. And to your comment before, even if you give someone this glossy report, they're still going to go and execute it and they don't know how. So we're seeing this repeat theme. So then we applied through the Innovation Council to get some initial funding. We won like a $10,000 award. This is an internal council at Warley. Exactly, yeah. So we won like a $10,000 award. And instead of using it in the traditional way of going and building a product or vetting it, we actually rented an Airbnb in San Diego and we brought together 10 people from around the world within the business, operations, construction, consulting, finance. Um, and we did that also with an optimization specialty team in the, in the industry, Zendi. And so we really tested, could this work? And we built a business plan. We then pitched it to what's called the CAC, the, I think it's the commercial committee. And, yeah. um, and we said to them, we believe there's a huge opportunity here, but it's not one that can be built within Wally. And we'd like, you know, we strongly believe that we need to spin this out. And are you interested? And because of the, the processes we'd gone through, this was a two-year period. We had made a commitment, proven it, tested it, got the buy-in for it. And we'd done that half a dozen times over that we had to yeah. support them when the big ask came, um, that we didn't get a huge amount of pushback. And this was yeah. a big deal for Wally. They very rarely invest, you know, millions of dollars into concepts that are then spun out. You know, this is quite a yeah. unique opportunity. It actually created some challenges downstream because a lot of people in the venture community don't like seeing strategics on the cap table. And so mm. it, I think that's what made it so hard raising money the first time is we had a very unconventional cap table. But for me, it was an amazing way to get my entrepreneurial start with the backing of a big corporation, but then going on the journey Amazing. of transitioning away from being under that umbrella and being a completely standalone company and having the autonomy to run it as needed versus operating within the bureaucracy and processes that are very hindering to doing innovative work within an organization. I'd say the last thing is um, I've always been anti-process. And so even within Wally in the early days, I created a group called the Mavericks and this was, <laughs> this was a group that was to break process, disrupt the business. And so I've never been a big fan of following the rules. And I think it requires that sort of personality trait to get stuff done within a corporation. One, stakeholder management. Two, pushing the limits. Three, speaking up. And to your point before, just being willing to ask. A lot of people just don't even ask. They just, uh, they're just too fearful that the answer is no, but that's okay. Uh, we got plenty of no's along the way. A lot of thoughts in my head right now of how to follow on to that. I remember in an interview with Patrick at Pies and um, and Nick Inger at um, Soulcast, um, both of which were spun out. Uh, interestingly, Pies spun out of um, 
of uh, a big Southern California uh, enterprise that mm. folks are well aware of. And um, and Soulcast was spun out of a university in Adelaide, I think. So there's two examples for folks if you want to go listen to two other episodes of folks who kind of go into the entrepreneurial process and and the IP process of getting your idea out of a bigger entity, especially a university, which is some of your uh, which is some of your cases. But who advised you on the the how of spinning it out? Because that's not something I would expect that there are like experts in Worley that were kind of looking over your shoulder, going, "Okay, this is how we're going to do this." Yeah, we made a lot of mistakes, honestly. <laughs> you know, we we just we learned by doing, and it was my first kind of true venture, and so I was leading it, but I certainly wasn't the expert. And uh, we had a few people around us who had done it before. Worley did have a venture team led by Roy mm. Roy Brown. And so there was support, but we certainly, you know, reflecting on it, we got the structure wrong. We didn't have the right legal support. We didn't get it set up right in the first place. And so we've spent multiple iterations kind of unraveling a bunch of that. You know, we're all so excited to just get this thing launched that we probably didn't think about the structure and the commercial model and all this sort of stuff initially. And so um, they were huge lessons learned that. I'd certainly advise anyone to get the right external legal support early. We tried yeah. to use internal counsel who had no expertise in startups and uh, it it didn't didn't go as well as it should have done. I think we should probably do a whole episode on that. Happy yeah. <laughs> to. Yeah. So uh, we covered the business model is a, basically a SaaS model where you have platform fees, not unlike, um, you know, other uh, SaaS models. Is there any differentiation uh, in SaaS model that you've tried to in- incubate or, or introduce? Yeah, so, well, it's platform access for the buyer, um, but then the suppliers get free access to our marketplace ecosystem, and then they pay okay. a success fee when they win work in the market. So we only capture value when value is created for everyone in the process. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of our differentiators, I'd say the biggest one is we are buyer-centric. The whole market is designed to support suppliers to sell more products, so modeling tools, procurement tools. So we've supported the buyer to be in control of the process to remove that information asymmetry that exists in the market today. We have the ability to work on electrical and thermal issues, which a lot of companies can't. They can either do one or the other. And we can consider all commercially viable technologies like we discussed before, which is very unique. So Mm -hmm. it's our ability to technically and financially support the customer to configure the right solution. But then almost more importantly is how do you then take that to market in a really succinct way? So our marketplace workflows of how do you put a request into the market and ensure that the buyer is thinking about all the key items that as a, because they've never bought an energy system before, they'd never know to ask what are the yeah. contract terms? What are the warranties? What are the commercial models I want to consider? Is it self-financing, energy as a service, debt financing? What do each of them look like? How do I do it? Who's responsible for what? You know, uh, is the supplier responsible for project management, construction, permitting, interconnection, civil works, da, 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 or do you have someone in-house that wants to take care of that? So all these key questions, the, the framework is set up to very simply handhold them through it and then ensure that they get really like-for-like bids back such that they can make an informed buying decision versus getting stuck in that indecision again because you're comparing an energy as a service opportunity versus self-financing and they're completely different completely different technologies suppliers so we want to make sure that it's vetted suppliers for the right opportunity based on location technology type commercial model so that the customers get access to the right people 
Because these are long-term partnerships. Yeah, it is long-term and partnership is the key, right? So yeah. one of the things that you see a lot of folks struggle with over the years is they want to go and build a tech stack, uh, usually try to grab stuff off the shelf. Um, I mean, smart sheets as an example. And right, like they just uh, adapt existing infrastructure to try and um, make decisions faster um, rather than build their own software, which is something that you've been working on. Um, but they realize that the real constraint and limiting factor is relationship. This is a relationship business and you need um, you need referrals. You need people uh, becoming aware of the product. So getting to that situation, you know, a lot of folks just abandon the software development piece um, and they focus on brand awareness and building relationships, which is not something that Vecta has focused on. You focus very much on how do I build this solution? I have two questions. Yep. The first, because you have focused on building a software solution that incorporates this intelligence, how does that become uh, self-referential or self-healing? How do you leverage AI or ML to ensure that as you get new inputs, new learning gets incorporated into the process so that the system itself as a platform uh, creates better value for the relationships that get injected into it. Yeah. Yeah. So we apply a lot of data science, especially around the buying experience. And so like we touched on before, there's about 5,800 data points per project that we source, whether that's from our own marketplace data. You can imagine every time a supplier bids on a project, it's anonymized, but we get access to real-time intelligence around how much are these project costing, how much is the cost of solar storage, et cetera, in that region. So we've got our own marketplace data, We've got public data for fuel prices, utility rates, demand charges, solar radiance, wind speeds, all this super important information, outage rates. And then um, we use all that to configure the solution in the first place or prioritize the portfolio. And then once the system's deployed, we'll get real-time monitoring data that will ensure that the system is performing as designed. And if not, why not? And how do we improve it? And then how do we feed that back into the, the learning curve for next time? So- with every project, we expect the industry to get more efficient each time. And we want to share those learnings with suppliers and buyers in the market. You know, Suppliers who don't win work, why aren't they winning work? Is it right. price? Is it experience? Is it So building all this credibility all the time and becoming that central source of truth and um, the fulcrum point for everyone to operate around. And from an AI perspective, that's only going to get more better all the time. You know, Where we really want to get this to is customers being able to have their base case optimized solution, but then being able to play around with their own scenarios. What happens if fuel prices change? What happens if interest rates change? How does that impact my solution? When should I buy? Why should I buy? Who should I buy from? Really driving that proactive intelligence all the time. I think a new feature that we've just created, which is really exciting around the Inflation Reduction Act is where across a customer's portfolio, can they qualify for energy communities and low-income communities? Because these really- oh, yeah provide additive um, tax credits. And so really, it's always about how you maximize the opportunity for the customer. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. It's built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher Energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you 
have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. Gareth, thank you for the extra time because I really didn't want to shortchange folks on getting deeper into the conversation about Vecta. Now you've spun it out with Worley Parsons and the conversation so far about becoming an entrepreneur, creating the Mavericks, which is such uh, an amazing insight into just the way your brain thinks and how counterculture you've been in your career. I want to dig into the, the creation of Vecta. First and foremost, Looking back over the last four years, what assumptions did you have to challenge in the first couple of years of business to really get this thing off the ground? Yeah, it's actually been a really interesting journey because we came into this believing that the market was actually, we knew it was early, but we didn't realize how early and we didn't yeah. realize how little people actually knew and how unprepared businesses are for the energy transition in terms of their access to key resources, access to information, access to data. So because we launched and COVID hit, we didn't have the ability to do a lot of real-time testing with customers. You know, that Mm -hmm. aspiration of starting a business, sitting around the uh, whiteboard, innovating, ideating with the team all day, every day, that evaporated overnight. And the ability to speak to customers and get real-time feedback evaporated overnight. And so we built the initial product a little bit in isolation. And we built it with a view that our customers would come into the product, they'd input a bunch of data, they get some results, they play around with it, and they'd be really interactive. And what we've really learned is they don't want to do any of that. They just want the outcomes. They want the outcomes quickly. They want it efficiently. They want to have confidence to act, but they don't actually want to be hands-on tools. Uh, they want to run their businesses. They want to maximize what they do. They don't want to become energy experts. They want to get the outcomes that will move the needle for them. And so what we really have to try and adjust is how much of that heavy lift up front in terms of access to data can we do such that it minimizes the inputs required by the customer? And that's where I think we touched on yesterday. Now for every site, we pull over 5,000 data points for every location that they input into the system. And so we do a huge amount of heavy lifting in terms of providing initial insights before wow. even needing them to interact with the product. It's super interesting. Uh, and if we think about, like we talked about pulling, extracting concepts from other sectors or industries. Now, I was having a conversation with uh, my friend, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. She's been on like a year and a, a year or two journey of being a digital nomad where she and her partner bought uh, an RV and they bought a brand new RV and they traveled around um, yep. the US. And she said, I said, what's your biggest regret? And she says, buying a brand new RV. I said, why? She said, because just like boats, um, new RV buyers are in fact product testers. That's all we are. Yeah. We spend the first, we spend two years telling 
Winnebago all the things that are wrong with this product so that they can send out a better one two years later. Yeah, and, super interesting. Uh, right? And lo and behold, um, as a new RV owner, she's not particularly satisfied with the product because she, resi- she resents being a product tester when she wanted to just buy a really nice RV. Yeah. That's what I get from my aha moment there is customers want outcomes. They don't want to help you build the product. They really don't. They want to know that they can trust you with their data. They want to know that you can give them an outcome. And that's where you see a lot of folks in, you know, we deal a lot with storytelling and marketing. Yep. They'll talk about the inputs. They'll talk about the journey rather than the destination. And it's completely wrong from a storytelling perspective, right? Yep. You're a mountain biker. You aren't going to sell someone on an epic uh, single route, single track by talking about the total climb required. Yeah, right? exactly. At all. No. If you're like, yeah, there's 2,000 feet of climb, it's epic. There's this one gap that is 100 feet wide and th- people will be like, oh man, I don't know. I don't want to think about the details. Tell me about, like, right? It's Where's in Tahoe. It? Yeah, exactly. Afterwards, we're going to have beers at this amazing restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> right? I'm in. Done. Totally. No, you're so true. Um, one of our, one of the customers said to us the other day, he said, um, tell me the pathway to value. Literally, mm. like, put on a slide, what are the inputs you need, what are the steps I take, and what's my simplest pathway to value? John, uh, give me your answer. Yeah, tell exactly. me your answer that you gave him. Uh, so this is what we're really nailing down now. I think uh, our product's in a really exciting spot. We've got a, an amazing team set up, and now it's fine-tuning the offering because... Mm-hmm. We know we create huge amounts of value at the front end in terms of how do you manage your portfolio? How do you prioritize? What should you build? Where should you build it? Who should you build it with? Mm -hmm. All that is incredible value. You know, up to 50% of project costs today now being compressed into single digit thousands. So what we said to him was, all we need from you initially is addresses, industry type, and then we do the rest in terms of pulling um, all the data that you need around outages, utility rates, demand charges, solar radiance, right. gas prices, all this sort of stuff. We'll mm-hmm. come back to you with a prioritized portfolio. That's step number one. So your input level is literally minutes. At that mm-hmm. stage, we'll prioritize some sites. What we need from you to then is to give us access to your utility API. And then after that, um, what we need you to do is review the business case, which is a couple of hours of your time, and then go yeah. through our RFP generator workflow. And your pathway to value is three check-in points and then you get firm bids. And that's where the money really hits the road because once you've got the system built. so simple. Yeah. Brilliant, Gareth. I'm really digging learning more about how you bring the product to market. And I'd love to know, as a founder, what did you learn most about filling out the early team? You mentioned at Worley that you had two really key team members that really understood the DG space. Um, Talk about building that early team in the process of getting the product market fit and what you learned about the right fit, the wrong fit, kind of mistakes or successes in hiring that got you to the place you're at now. Yeah, this has been a really good, good experience, good lessons learned. I think there's a lot Mm -hmm. here for people to dig into. Um, When we created Vector, one of the team that we'd built this with or attested it with within the corporation, Tristan came with me into Vector, Andrea stayed within the corporation. That was their request, such that they didn't lose all their talents on that side of the 
of defense. Yeah. In hindsight, I wish she'd have come into the business as well. And I wish I'd have pushed harder for that because yeah. she was the real kind of strategic brains behind it. Um, a lot of the thinking. Um, so those two were awesome in terms of framing, here's the market opportunity, here's the pathway to value, but they weren't necessarily implementers. So since, like Tristan came into the business with me, but we since agreed that after we got the business off the ground, he wasn't the right guy for startup world. Mm. He was nervous about fundraising. He was nervous about, you know, future survival. Um, he was not an implementer. He was a, you know, a visionary. So we agreed that to wind him out of the business. Um, in the early days, we felt like we needed a really strong CTO. Yeah. One of our board members recommended someone who actually built one of the biggest marketplaces in the world today that we all use, the Apple App Store. Yeah. Um, he came into the business. He'd come from a culture that was under, under Steve Jobs and others, apparently extremely toxic. And he yeah. brought that with him into the business. Very, you know, very siloed, very central control. Nothing passes through the business without it passing through that individual. Mm. Um, very aggressive in, in a stance, and especially in this day and age, and especially being remote, especially based on our culture and values, none of that aligned. Mm. So it took me a year to actually get him out of the business. Oh, uh, we goodness. essentially lost a huge amount of time and progress doing that. And his but role was what? CTO. Oh my God. So he was responsible for building the product. Um, so yeah, that was a massive lesson learned. And I think in hindsight, I saw some of the warning signs. I didn't necessarily want to believe them because I thought, mm. you know, here's this guy, big brand name. We're trying to raise money. We need someone with this. But in reality, it, it but, just accelerated our business once we removed also, it. Also, imposter syndrome, I imagine, of like, who am I to question a board member and this guy from Apple? Yep. Right? What, I'm missing something. Surely I'm missing something. Yep. Right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was a really um, painful period. Is there something, stressful period. Is there something yeah. looking back on it that would have been now advice you'd give me as a founder, things that you can put in place or sort of perspectives to have to avoid missing the early warning signs that would have triggered uh, more confidence in yourself or in me to make those decisions as the founder. Uh, like I'm wondering in particular if there are simple, maybe not so simple, but like cultural norms, right? Being very specific or, or aligned on with the way that we do things or organizational structures. Is there anything that you've thought about that would have helped you either ferret out the, the, talk, the, the warning signs early and be able to take action on them or that would have given you more confidence as a founder? Yeah, I think um, the biggest regret is because this person came recommended from someone who was trusted within a network. They hadn't worked with him for no. 10 years, but they'd had previously good experiences and they're aware of him and they recommended him based on that. Because of that, I didn't do as an aggressive amount of due diligence as I should have done. It was like, he's being recommended, his resume is incredible, but I never really dug into who are you? What do you believe? What's your background? What are your personality types? You know, mm. I do that for every high, but I think because this was such a senior person. So I'd say, mm -hmm. regardless of who it is, regardless of who recommends, always do your due diligence, always do your reference checks, always dig into yeah. what motivates them, what their values are, are they aligned? Okay. And so, then and then within the business, okay. I'd, I'd say, listen to the team mm. intently. How do you do uh, that? How all, do you structure always. so that you can listen, so that you have audience? And exactly. they feel a trust? And, yeah, and one of our biggest 
core values is, you know, empower co-creation, adapt purposefully. And my expectation is always in terms of challenging limits, that also includes challenging, like there's no hierarchy when it comes to challenging limits. Uh If someone is doing something that is outside of what we would expect to be best practice, it needs to be called out and challenged. And some people started to speak up and it was ultimately because they brought it to me that I was able to act because in those situations with those types of individuals, you don't see it because they're controlling everything. And that's, that's the danger is mm. it becomes and it's very also cancerous. almost by design, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's to protect their fiefdom in some cases. So yep. uh, you said the core, core value of empower co-creation and then adapt? Purposefully. Yeah. So our three core values, challenge limits, adapt purposefully, empower co-creation, and they're core to now everything we do that, that drives my life, drives the business. Mm. And uh, we live by it. Every Friday, I do a, a summary of how the week went. We celebrate against those values. We call out where we need to improve against those values. We give awards against those values. So that kind of underpins everything we do. I love that so much. Uh, I want to dig into more around that. Uh, perhaps next time we get to hang out in person, you can share some more yeah, of those yeah. precepts and the, and the way that you, I think it's really important, the way that you can sort of indoctrinate the cultural values that you want in your company, because that's super important. I've got um, a friend, Drew, um, in Utah who, He's really, really um, proven very good at that. Um, a relatively small business that he's building. You'll, you'll meet him when we all hang out in Vegas. Um, he's gotten very good at kind of working himself out of the business by being very clear about the cultural values and yep. ensuring that his leadership understands how to tie those back to the actual outcomes in the business. And as you said, reward cultural acculturation to the right types of norms that you want to see in the business. That's yep. really, that's super important. One of the things that you yep. pointed out, and I, I feel like, and I feel like we're, there's something else you want to say, but I want to, I don't want to miss this opportunity here before we move into the next sort of element of this. You pointed out personality types, and this is something that I key in on a lot with leaders. And I don't see enough companies really trying to understand communication style. And they see this whole like personality types thing as a rigorous boxing of someone's uh, sort of type rather than a communication protocol. Can you talk yep. a bit about what you've learned about personality styles, the types of tools that you use, and how you integrated it into your management of the business? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. I'd say what's been exciting since that, I suppose, false start of the CTO, mm-hmm. every hire since has been incredible. And we've got a really balanced executive leadership team. When I think about like the disc profile, each of us sits in one of the four quadrants. Um, so I would sit in the I quadrant. So I am by design, visionary and empathetic. So it's all about the people, but it's mm-hmm. about the vision yeah. and the execution. And I think understanding where people fit in terms of their preferences, their comfort zones, how they like to be communicated is super interesting. For instance, our engineering manager, I know that she is an S uh, in the disc profile, which would mean that she's more task orientated, but still more people orientated. But in a meeting, if you put someone like that on the spot, they don't want to voice their opinion because they haven't had time to process. So the key for that is speaking to them beforehand, here's what we're gonna discuss. I need you to think about this. I need you to review the data. And then I want you to be able to come into the meeting with the ability to share your opinion. Whereas if you spring it on them, 
you're never going to get those insights. And so yeah. understanding, and then you know, the people who are aggressive, um, data-driven, um, they're the people who are going to interrogate everything and get lost in the data instead of trusting the gut and the out. So it's very interesting kind of balancing all that. And I, I really like, even in a sales call, very quickly trying to figure out where is this person in the quadrant based on how they respond. You know, for instance, if someone comes into a sales call, like, what's this about? Why am I here? You know that you need to get to the point quickly. You need yeah. to paint a picture of the vision. If someone comes in and goes, yeah, what's this about? Like, I'm quite curious. Can you share uh -huh. some information? You know they're more on the, the data-driven side, so then you can't paint the big picture vision. You have to take them on. Here's what the data is saying. Go away and process the data and come back tomorrow and let me know whether you're interested. You know, so I like exploring that, this, this journey. Is there any resource that you'd point to that helped you um, dig deeper? Or maybe even um, how do you, I have some that I often recommend, but how do you test for personality style in particular with DISC? Where do you send, how do you do that? Yeah, I can share a link afterwards for sure, Nico. I actually learned this through, uh, I'm part of a CEO network group called Vistage. And I oh, think yeah. one of the big best advice, I went to the Volaworth Symposium earlier this year, one of our investors, and they brought a bunch of their LPs. And one of the guys who has built one of the biggest solar businesses in the world, his his advice when asked if you could do it all over again, what was the biggest lesson learned? And he said to have a CEO group that you can lean on because yeah. it's lonely. You need people who have been on it, going through the same pain points. And so mm -hmm. through this Vistage group, we just had a speaker come in in the last few months and talk all about the disc profile, share some insights, share some information. That's awesome. And then he, he runs the profiles for us. That's super cool. We talked about product market fit broadly. Um, you gave great example in the very beginning, but can you tell me how, and maybe you aren't, you aren't, don't feel like you're fully there, but how or when did you feel like you finally had something that was nearing product market fit? Was there anything that you as a CEO were looking for that you can enunciate that other CEOs might be able to go, oh, okay, that helps a lot. I, I'm, I'm looking for like advice from you on generally what we know to be true, which is, You've gotten to a series A, um, kind of series B is just pouring cash on top of the, on top of the growth engine, right? So you, I presume that you're right at that point where you think you kind of have a good idea of what PMF looks like. Can you talk about that a minute? We're definitely getting close. Like I said to you before, I think the thing we're really refining now is around how we communicate the offering and especially mm -hmm. with the market being where it's at and the level of understanding and education, um, for me, the product market fit is definitely come in the form of being able to sign up big global enterprise businesses like mm -hmm. the Honeywells of the world, where these are extremely sophisticated organizations and they don't make buying decisions without doing their due diligence. Yeah. And that gives me the confidence because you know, when you've got businesses like that saying, we really like what you're doing, we're willing to put money into this mm -hmm. and we want to use it to enable our business to do better. That's for me kind of the game changer moment, you know, having the ones and twos and the single individual projects is great, but it doesn't prove to me that this is, this is it. Let's now double down. But once we're now converting these larger enterprise customers, that's, that's a game changer. And it also makes it harder because you know, these sales cycles for these big customers is really painful. Yeah. And so, them managing stakeholder expectations around all this opportunity is there, but it's going to take us a while to get the deals closed because you got to take a village on the journey versus a single individual. Yeah. Well, that's why you have to go get uh, money from people like Bill. 
And exactly. Uh, what kind of pipeline, uh, broadly speaking, did you feel uh, became necessary in order to raise that Series A? Because there was certainly a point where you have the confidence to go out and raise money. And there was a point before that where you're, you're thinking, okay, I think that by the time I get to X, I'll be able to do this Series A. What, what did that look yeah. like for you? So we called it actually a seed two. So mm. we haven't actually officially done ah. a Series A. Okay. Um, I apologize. I've been because, saying Series A. No, it's okay. I'd say you could probably call it a small Series A, C2. Yeah. I think the terms all get yeah. blurred these days. But um, for us, it was having good pipeline of projects. So we've got over 500 projects in the platform now. Um, again, some big customer conversions. I think that oh, was that the real That feels overwhelming to, to a lot of people. Yeah. You realize that, right, Gareth? 500 projects in the pipeline feels overwhelming so that, <laughs> for most folks that are in our game, right? But when you, when you imagine, Nico... Um, a single customer could have 200 sites. Okay, so, so project for you could be 200 of one customer. Okay, got exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So this isn't, fi- yeah, I wish we had 500 individual customers. <laughs> uh, not yet. Uh, in the future. Yeah, so we think about a project being an individual site. And so you know, when you think each of those sites has an opportunity associated with it, but it may, it may not be a high priority opportunity today. Yeah. So this is the long game that we need to play is going on this journey and converting projects at the right time for the customer. Is there any particular uh, key player that without which you wouldn't have been able to get this far? Or even maybe type of player, given what we were just talking about. As in team member or as in... Yeah, I mean, maybe you define this. Like I'm asking generally, when you think about your journey over the last, let's say 12 months, maybe 18 months, if not for the decision, this hiring decision, we wouldn't be where we are. Or maybe it's a series of them. Yeah, well, there's definitely um, many. You, yeah, you can <laughs> talk the, about individuals. Like, yeah, I, I don't expect you're going to talk about individuals. I don't want you, you're, you know, you to call out any one particular person unless it makes sense to do so. I'm more thinking broad strokes around the pieces that you recognized were missing. That when you filled them in, things started to work. Yeah. So if I'd have done this all over again and started today. I'd have hired our head of sales on day one and I'd have gone out and sold a product without having a product and then I'd have built it on the fly based on the customer feedback. And yeah, I'd, very I'd, American instead of I'd very European it, of you. Exactly. I just I'd had this call. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'd have done it all manually. Yeah. Um, the, uh, um, David over at PV Case was saying, he said one of the saving graces of PV Case is that we built it with a European mindset and an American sales mind, <laughs> right? Because this co-founder is an American and, uh, and a European and so they built it like a Mercedes and sold it like software. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. But the great thing about salespeople is they they don't have the technical answers. You know, we we tend to not hire energy experts from a sales perspective because energy experts will go in and try and come up with a solution. And the whole point of having the technology is you remove the emotion, you remove the manual mechanics of it because there are hundreds of thousands of variables that influence the project. So... All of us come into a situation going, oh, this could be solar, it could be storage, but actually it ends up being a gas solution or right. it becomes a fuel cell. And or so variable frequency whole, drive. Exactly. And so the beauty of having non-technical salespeople is they have to listen, they have to learn, they have to bring the ideas back to the team, and then that enhances the product. And so uh, that's, I think, been one of the biggest learnings for me. I genuinely hope that more people have listened through this far in the interview than statistics would suggest. Because, uh, I mean, we're going to have to take what you just said, that last three minutes, and kick it out as a, as a YouTube short. More people need to hear it. 
uh, Gareth, like I could, that's like mic drop moment right there for me. Um, Jeff uh, Greenfield grew a business for 17 years. And um, I mean, this is one of those indelible moments that people ask, like, what have you learned in 600 plus episodes? Um, Jeff Greenfield said to me, I wish I'd raised money sooner. Mm. And, um, and I said, why? And he said, because I could have given my kids better Christmas presents. I could have had fewer stressful nights. I could have, uh, uh, I, I could have taken vacation. Uh, I built it on a shoestring and I didn't have to. And yep. what I know now, looking back, is I should have just raised money, given up more of my own personal equity and saved more of my personal well-being and my family yep. less strife. And I would put that on the same shelf as hire salesperson day one, <laughs> right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And on that investment front, I'm very lucky to have a really diverse board and I've got some really pragmatic board members who are all about, mm. no one wants massive dilution, but at the same time, Let's be really realistic about this. If we want to grow and we want to be yeah. the platform that every business in the world thinks about when they think about energy, we're not going to do that without putting yeah. fuel on the fire. And That's to right. do that, you need money. And That's so right. let's go and raise some money. And uh, right. especially in these market dynamics, that was the conversation we had is, mm. do we wait and do our Series A when we expect the timing to be perfect? Or do we do this seed to bridge type round because mm. who knows what the market's going to do? And let's make sure we're positioned like my prediction is 2024 is going to be quite flat, but the IRA is going to be coming into fruition. 2025, the market's really going to take off. And I think unless businesses are preparing through 2024 for that real kick, then they're going to be left behind. And so I see this as being still for every business in the world, a bit of a survival phase, a bit of pre-positioning, a bit of making sure that they're ready to really go between that 2025, 2028 period where I think the market's really going to turn. Couple of quick questions for you. What terminology did uh, you have to learn uh, or continually you have to teach inside of your team for new people uh, around the lexicon of the product in the, in the sector? Yeah, I think um, because we're creating a sector, we are every day trying to double down on the same terms, being consistent, educating the market. So we use the term on-site energy. Some people say microgrids, distributed energy. On-site energy, we believe, is the all-encompassing simplified version of all of that. A microgrid sounds really complex. Yeah, it does. A customer doesn't want to buy a microgrid, but if you can generate some energy on site and reduce your costs and your emissions, then that sounds really achievable. And so mm. I'd say it's been able to take customers on this journey of what is an on-site energy system? What is yeah. the energy transition? What is the inflation reduction? These are all terms that all day, every day are coming up and uh, people don't know a lot about. I love it. It's almost as though you're reading my notes because my next question was what terms have you created or reinforced to capture mind share that you don't see used in the marketplace enough? Because it's one to say like, well, we need to continually teach people what distributed generation is. And so we talk to customers about DG and microgrids. And then the marketer's mind, which you clearly have, goes, wait a minute. These are terms. This is like an old way of thinking. Let's create a, a, a term that we can own. Um, let's yeah. drive mindshare around terminology. And for you, that's on-site energy. And i um not surprised every time I get on the phone with you, it's like we're reading from the same book here. Um, so thank you for that. Gareth, let's turn towards home base here. Um, we've packed a lot, 10 pounds and a five pound sack on this one. But I want to know if there are any particular salient lessons or takeaways that you gleaned from early mentors and leaders that had a, either a profound impact on you and or things that you now pass along to your team as you mentor and train them. Yeah, definitely some incredible mentors. And I'd say for anyone going through their careers, 
the best advice I had was build your network, find the people who can sponsor you through mm. the industry, through the world, through your company. Yeah. Um, Brad Andrews, Tony, Tony Frenchman was the guy who really supported us to launch Vector. He was the guy that I rocked up to him within the corporation and on yeah. the first week of his job said, are you ready to write a big check? I've got an idea for you. you and he went that. on the journey. Yeah. And, uh, he bought into it and That's he awesome. fought for us and he helped helped us get it done. Um, but he was always about have your plan, work your plan. You don't know when the results are going to come. So have the discipline to just, you know, grind it out and have the persistence. And I think that's really key to all of this is, you know, just take those steps every day. The discipline comes in the form of not knowing when the results are going to really show up, but they will if you're doing the mm. right things consistently. Fascinating. What do you do consistently that has given you leverage in the business, in your personal life? Yeah, personal life. I have an amazing morning routine. Up early, I do my workout first thing. What's early? I do uh, like 5.30. Mm -hmm. I do uh, weights or indoor ride or a run. I do a cold plunge. I do my meditation. I then walk my son up to school. So that's our together time. We hang out for 20 minutes. I then jog home from dropping him off at school. And so then by eight o'clock, I've done everything in my personal life that I wanted to get done that day, such that now is business focus time. And I block off my mornings for my flow time. So that's where I do my deep thinking, my strategy. How, how my much marketing. is that block, that, that deep, deep thinking? Two, two one hour blocks okay. um, with a 15 minute kind of coffee break. And then I keep my afternoons open for them meetings and all the kind of the stuff that in theory should require less of my brain. Cal Newport is so proud of you. Really? Yeah. I mean, he wrote Deep Work, right? So there's a, there's a philosophy in Silicon Valley uh, floated by many Cal being um, you know, one that, that purports um, the importance of, and I've done this in my career as well, uh, the, early, uh, the early block. Like when is your most creative time, mm -hmm. right? Like I know for me, interviewing before 11 a.m., I'm going to get less advantage. Um, so I usually start about 11 a.m., um, Unless I've gotten up and got, I mean, I'm, I'm always impre incredibly impressed by uh, folks who are super consistent with their morning routine. It's one thing to have one. It's another to be disciplined with it. Yeah. Um, so you're, what, what percentage hit rate do you have with your morning routine? If I'm at home, uh, 100%. Yeah. But, you know, this week I'm on the road and it's yeah. a very slippery slope, but, you know, I'm up late drinking I'm yep. up early going to meetings, um, drinking coffee all day to stay awake, and then mm. it all leads to bad outcomes. And so I'll it? finish this week feeling exhausted. <laughs> How long to recover when you get home? Yeah, it'll take me definitely a good few days, but I'll try and get straight back into the routine to try and uh, make myself mentally feel good again. Otherwise, mm. I feel really, really sloppy. So I know that you are an Iron Man. I know that you and your wife both are avid cyclists. Um, you just are recently healing from broken bones outside of energy. What do you nerd out about? Mountain biking, motorbiking. That's kind of my real passion, hanging out with the family. My son's nine, so he's into soccer and rugby. Uh, luckily, he's into more of the European sports than he is American sports, which I still haven't got up to speed on. Um, so yeah, hanging out with the farm, doing mm -hmm. anything adventurous, camping, hiking, biking. But I have a big KTM adventure nice. off-road motorbike, and that's kind of my real, real, you know, free ride. Amazing. Get out of my head, go and adventure. That's super cool. We need to put yeah. together a, like, a solar motorcycle tour, 
right? Like mm-hmm. just solar CEOs where we just go on a cycle, a motorcycle tour. Um, That'd be amazing. Yeah. More of like an enduro tour. Um, all right. What book or books have either most inspired you and or been on your most recommended list? Yeah. Um, the one I actually recently gifted to our head of sales, Dan, because he's in a really good spot right in his life right now where he's finished his MBA. He's got a few young kids. He's bought a house, renovated a house. So now he's like ready to really smash this. I bought him uh, the monk that sold his Ferrari. Yeah. I don't know whether you've read that one, but uh-huh. that's one of my favorites, you know, all about mastering your mind. Yeah. Robin following Shana. your purpose. Yeah. Living Love with it. discipline. So I'd say that's, that's probably one of my favorites. That's great. Is there anything um, from a, and, and that does have business principles. It's a, a spiritual mm-hmm. fable about fulfilling dreams um, and really reaching what you're capable of. Um, is there anything kind of along the lines of good to great that's like a business book that has really given you firm strategy or uh, ability to build a business as an entrepreneur? It's interesting. I actually prefer podcasts these days. So I really like yeah. listening to Diary of a CEO, High Performance. Um, they're probably two of my best go-tos. They're um, so European. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. The guy is killing it. Diary of a CEO has crushed. It's the number one yeah. business podcast in Europe and most Americans don't know it. Yeah. Their YouTube Ho- channel is amazing. Yeah. And Homozy as well, obviously, from a sales perspective, yeah. I'd encourage everyone to kind of follow his his strategies. That's super yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, his latest launch is a course on how to grow a business and $100 million leads is a book that... Um, yeah. I would, I would highly recommend. Uh, he came I think out with a podcast. you recommended that to me and I read it and I loved nice. it. And I, yeah, well, that's part of why we're challenging our offering right now. Yeah, $100 million offers is a fantastic book that you can buy for 99 cents on, on Kindle. What I love yeah. about his business is that he gives away education. His goal is to educate as many entrepreneurs as possible and get them to 10 million so he can invest in them. That's cool. I love Alex Hormozzi, our team. I mean, if people are watching, right? Like this is a little bit of behind the scenes, but if people are watching over the next 18 months, and can't see like Alex Alex Hormozzi's thumbprint on on Suncast, then they are then tell me right like tell me that you are like why aren't you doing this that or the other because uh, Graham on my team like all he does is watch uh, Alex Hormozzi videos literally nice. and I turned all my team onto this this guy because somebody told me about it Diary of a CEO I, I found out about from somebody else turned my team onto it and they're all like geeked out about it uh chris who's our editor who's from australia and moving to london he's geeks out, he geeks out about diary and he was like oh i can't believe you watch it it's because it's so popular in europe and not really here anyway i'm all about modeling success because success leaves clues um yep. is it in that to that end i've never asked this question but is there someone um or or something that you have modeled as a successful um blueprint yeah there's actually a bunch of people i you know, i went through a process i had a bit of a coach at one point a few few years ago where i felt like I needed to really you know, figure this out, especially being in the CEO role. And we actually mapped out who are the people I look up to and I no like, like their attributes. And so Gary mm-hmm. Vaynerchuk is a big one. Yeah. Elon Musk aspects of him, Branson, Schumacher, we talked about, my mom, my dad. And so then I actually came up with my own mission statement to align with some of those key values and things that I liked about them, vision, confidence, motivational, respectful, decisive. And so I came up with this uh, mission statement that said to my mission is to create a survivable and thriving future for all, starting with energy. Vector will be the platform that simplifies and unlocks the energy transition and becomes the biggest energy enabling company in the world. I'll achieve this by being confident, fearless, and when required, ruthless. I'm calm, assertive, and decisive. I lead an incredibly passionate and talented team that is the envy of the industry. 
and I lead by example, motivate others, and I hunt, kill, or will die. So that's my kind of what I write every morning. I try and uh, stay in the zone, and that's kind of the outlook on life. You write it every morning. Yep. There you have it, folks. Gareth Evans is the founder of Vecta, a company that you will hear about and should have on your radar. Gareth, I'm honored to have had the opportunity to meet you. I know for sure why my friend and mentor, Bill Nussie, invested in your business. And such a privilege to be able to tell more uh, Solar Warriors about the journey you're on. Thank you for coaching us for the last 90 minutes. No, it's been an honor. Thank you for all you do. You produce amazing content with amazing guests and uh, I'm privileged to have been a part of it. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that is a wrap on this insightful conversation with yet again, another entrepreneur from across the pond. How do you like these? Well, I'm hoping that you do enjoy episodes where we're broadening our horizons and perspectives, bringing in folks that have done quite a bit more travel than your average solar warrior, at least more than me. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversations that we've had with Martine, with David and Jake from PBKs, and now with Gareth, learning more as well about how the solar software sector is growing and how technology is helping us truly accelerate the transition to cleaner, renewable fuels and a more sustainable future for our businesses. What did you learn? I'm eager to hear, and I know that Gareth is as well. So you, my fellow follow math, can jump on over to the show notes page where you'll find both the LinkedIn connection to Gareth as well as to myself, which will easily take you to one of the posts that we have made about this episode. Drop your brain droppings right there in the comments. Tell us what it is that is your key takeaway from this episode or tweet at Nico Mayo. I don't know exactly what Gareth's Twitter or X handle is, but I'm sure that it will be in the show notes as well. MySuncast.com is your home for all of that information. You click on the episode notes page and it'll give you everything you need. And if it doesn't, and you need something that's not found in the episode, but you'd like to rather, rather instead talk with me or find out how you could partner with us on Suncast, well, click on the Work With Nico tab and we'll see what we can do for you. I'd like to take a moment and thank those who help make this show possible so that you don't have to pay a single thing other than your attention and your time, which are, of course, immeasurably valuable. SunGrow, among many others, have helped bring this show to you for free and we are honored. You can find out more about our sponsors and how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like yourself twice a week by going to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's truly half the battle.